You're listening to Nightlight. Hi, and welcome back once again to Nightlight. Great to be with you again. Great to have back on Nightlight once again, author Stephen Strutt. I'm going to be interviewing Stephen about his latest book, Estrus Insights. That's the second book of Estrus, which is one of the 15 apocrypha books that were actually published in the original King James Bible in 1611 before being removed in 1885. Some believe that as these books were in the Bible for nearly 2,000 years, they never should have been removed. And that's an ongoing debate between theologians. But at the very least, there's no doubt that the book we're going to talk about today, Second Esdras, is an extremely important historical and prophetical book that's well worth a read. And here to explain why is our guest on this special edition of Nightlight, Stephen Strutt. Nightlight's interview of the week. Stephen, welcome back to Nightlight. Great to have you with us once again. Thank you, Simon, for inviting me again. It's a real pleasure to be with you. By the way, where are you speaking to us from? I'm speaking to you by Skype here from Scotland, near Dundee, in the northeast of Scotland, from my home. Oh, you're way up there in Scotland. Okay, well, I'm speaking to you, as you know, from our studio here in Kampala, where this week, Stephen, I've actually done a professional recording of the book that you've written a book about, Second Estrus. For our listeners who know nothing about Estrus, maybe you could start by telling us who Estrus was and why did you choose to write a book about Second Estrus? Yes, certainly. The first book I was interested in was the last one I did, which is the Book of Enoch. And then the next one was this one, Estrus. Why Estrus? Yes, why Estrus? Because in studying different apocrypha books, the book of Ezra stuck out as one that talks a lot about the Lord, talks about Jesus, and it talks about a lot about the same way that we've always believed, about the coming of the wrath of God, the end time, the conditions that will be on the earth right before Jesus comes. And in reading it, I couldn't believe how it's been so seriously sidelined when it used to be in the King James Bible until 1885. Right. I've read this book many, many, many times. I've researched it many times. To answer one of your questions, why is it called Esdras? Why not the book of Ezra? If it was written by the prophet Ezra, I claim that it was written by Ezra himself in about 500 BCE. Others dispute that and think it was done by some pseudo-writer some many people even say they think it was written by the early Christians in about 70 AD. Right. Now I followed all those kind of arguments, but I have found out that those arguments don't carry any weight because of the actual content of the book. There's a lot of people today who are very skeptical and they skim through books and they make comments and arguments without getting into the depth of what the book is actually talking about. Yes. Now the actual word Esdras. That comes because the Jewish writers, they actually combined two books, one Ezra and the other Nehemiah, because they thought that these two books were very similar. It was, it was the same time period, and they combined them, and they ended up with this odd name, Esdras. I don't know why exactly they did it that way, but that's how it turned out. They ended up giving it that name, but it's really, it is true. Well, I have studied at length the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, and it is true, you will find things in those two books in this uh, book of Second Esdras. Uh-huh. 
Another reason why I chose this book and say not First Esdras is because First Esdras is more like God rebuking his people for their negligence of him and it doesn't really go into details about the end time, neither does it give prophecy about uh, the Messiah and a lot of other very interesting topics. So since I'm especially interested in Bible prophecy at the end time, I thought that I'd work more on the book of Second Esdras, which I've called in my book Esdras Insights. That's the reason. And I've read, Stephen, there's a lot of the prophecies in Second Esdras very much dovetail with the prophecies in the book of Revelation. That is correct. That's what makes it very exciting. Like, I just reread through my book the, the, this morning, and what I was stunned by it again is the way Ezra has written these things is remarkable. Now, I take the strong stand. I mean, others don't have to, but my, my stance with my book is having read this book thoroughly, that is, the book of Second Esdras, researched on it, what others have said, other opinions, I just come to the conclusion, the same as I did with the book Enoch, that it was definitely the person who claimed to be writing it, and that was Ezra. You can't miss that if you really read the book, because over and over again you find, it's very interesting, but it's actually the same angel talking with Ezra as was talking with Enoch yes. 3,000 years before. And that was the, the angel Uriel. And it seems to me, well, to the Jewish people, Uriel, that's Ariel one of the most important archangels. Now, when God wants to tell his people something really important, he sends this angel along. Uh -huh. So what is amazing, when you discover that and you find out, look, the book of Enoch talks a lot about the same things, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and, and all the prophets. And now again, you, you look into Ezra, and for a long time, I never even knew Ezra was a prophet. I mean, very few of us did because, it, it, you know, it's been taken out of the Bible, like I said. But what I want view, viewers to understand is it was in the Bible till 1885. And the reason it was taken out of the Bible, found recently, the reason those 1415 Apocrypha books were taken out of the King James Bible is because a decision was made back then that any books that were not in the original Hebrew where they couldn't rely on. I see. That's what they thought, because they thought they were done in another language like Greek or that when when the Jews are in captivity, therefore for some odd reason it couldn't be relied upon. I would dispute that, but that's what they decided back in 1885. But they made a big mistake, because along came the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. Yes. And lo and behold, what did they find? They find the Book of Enoch in Hebrew. They find Second Esdras in Hebrew. They found a lot of the other pocket books in Hebrew. So that decision back in 1885 I think was a very bad decision because if you read your Bibles and you know your Bibles really well and you know the prophecy books of the Bible and you know all the prophets, uh -huh. when you come to read the Apocrypha books it's just like brother and sister. You say, hey, how come I missed this? I never read this. This is very interesting. Uh, it just, it adds, how is it? It's like if you've got a beautiful cake Somebody comes along and puts the icing on and, and, and the decorations. Oh, wow, I never knew that was available. Right. And um, so I think for the, the hungry heart who's longing to know more, especially about God's plans and, and about heaven and what's going to happen next on this planet and, and, and how can we be safe uh, from the future, those who really want to know what God, the mind of God, I think 
every Christian should read these apocrypha books, of which I've just got into four of them so far in detail. I have read the other ones, but these ones stick out to me as being the most important ones as they add to what we already know from the end time from the Bible. Right. So that's why I've chosen this book to work on Esdras, or Second Esdras, the next one. And I'm currently working on two more books. I'm working on the book of Jasher and a book of Jubilees. And I'm very, very fortunate because I have a very dedicated artist, my daughter, Suzanne Strutt, and she is going out of her way. She's drawing the covers for my next two books. And I mean, they're going to look incredible. I know the work. <laughs> She's doing them in oil painting. So I'm, uh, I, it's amazing because I said, look, those books, I don't need the paintings yet because I won't bring them out probably for another six months. Right. But it's just amazing how the Lord is doing it because I'll be honest with you. I wasn't intending to publish my books. I was just intending to keep them as PDF copies, send them to a few friends, see what they thought. I never thought of giving out to the general public, but then I had people say, oh, please publish the books. It would be wonderful if we had it as a study book, if we had it in our hands, because a, a PDF copy is, is not good enough for a book like this, because this is a study book, and you have to, as you correctly said yourself, you've got to go through it very slowly and thoroughly. Yes. But it's amazed me each time I've thought not to do it, because as a writer, and especially as a publishing book, it's expensive. It costs a lot of money. And I thought, well, as a a poor missionary myself, how am I going to afford to do this? But then I put it in God's hands, I prayed and I asked the Lord, and he said, no, I want you to publish these books. These are going to be read by a lot of people. So you just have the faith to do, do it slowly. And that's what I started to do. So I recently published Enoch Insights and Ezra's Insights. But what amazed me was, with the artwork, I never had to pay for it. Somebody offered to do it for me for free. And I've got that for the next two books, too. And, and somebody even contacted me the other day, said, if you've got any other books, I'll, I'll make a cover for them. So I've got two artists right there without even trying. <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah, without even trying. And if you know about these covers, they are not cheap to make. You know, especially of the quality that you'd like to have as, as a writer. Um, I know. I see a lot of books these days, and the covers are absolutely awful. But to, you, as somebody has correctly said, you know, a... Uh, a picture's worth a thousand words. So if you're going to put something out there, for God's sake, make it look like something. So that's what I've wanted. And, and the Lord has supplied the finances to do that by others doing it for me. I'm very, very thankful to them for that. That's wonderful. Um, so I think I'll keep writing. And it seems that as long as I keep writing for the Lord, he just supplies. I, I can't explain it. It's, it's miraculous how he does it. <laughs> We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. And our guest on Nightlight is author S.N. Strutt, Stephen Strutt, and he's talking about his latest book, Estrus Insights. Stephen, let's now get down to the content of this fascinating apocryphal book of Second Estrus. Maybe you can give us like a bird's eye view of the book and highlight some of the most important chapters. Right then. Well, first of all, I'll say that this book is, is quite short compared to the last book I did, the book of Enoch has 108 chapters. This book of Second Esdras only has 16 chapters. Having said that, each chapter has is chock full of very, very interesting topics. I mean, I wouldn't want to be without Second Esdras now, now that I've studied it thoroughly. The first, to start off in this book, in the first chapter, what I've done, as I did with Enoch Insights, I decided that let's make these books more interesting to people 
because most people have the impression that the Apocrypha books is some dry old dusty book somewhere in some faraway library that nobody reads. And I want to say that's not good enough. I've got to bring it out into the open where people want to read it, where they really want to read yes. it. Yes. And um, that's why I said before, that's why first thing, get some good covers. None of these boring, dusty library covers. Make it interesting. Uh, the second thing I thought was I better put some suggestive title for each chapter of the book so to give people an immediate idea of what might be in that chapter. So that's what I've done and, and with Esther's insights I've started off with God's Lament as the first chapter and I'd like to say here that if you read your Bible really well, if you read the prophets, if you read Isaiah, if you read Jeremiah and what Jesus says in the New Testament Matthew 23, you constantly see God's Lament over the fact that so many people don't listen to him. Yes. He, he always says, you, you committed this crime, you don't take the time to listen to me, and that's why everything's going wrong and going astray. God says the same thing in this book too, that he laments over the fact that they have gone astray from his children, children of Israel at the time, have gone astray from God. It's like God has a broken heart, the fact that people they have a loving God and they choose not to embrace him, not to have communication with him. And I think what we can, what people need to learn more than anything in this life, and I think we're all here for, is to learn to get closer to God, get closer to Jesus, get closer to his Holy Spirit, get closer to the spirit of love. Yes. And God is heartbroken that most people choose not to do so. Uh, I think that's, it is, it's, a very, it's, uh, it's tragic, it's heartbreaking, but you'll find it in all the prophets. They start off, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, all they start off in the same way. So the first chapter I call God's Lament. So I find it very helpful reading that, see how God feels. The second chapter I call The Call of the Bride. Now this is very, very interesting because Ezra living 500 years BCE approximately, it was actually between 600 and 470, he's talking here about the bride and most people think that, oh, this book must be a New Testament book because it's talking about the bride. Right. But no. If you look at other scriptures, you find that God does talk about the bride in different places. Even in the book of Enoch, if you study it carefully, you'll find that God talks about his bride in the end time. It's just a matter of knowing where to read about it. It's not just in the New Testament. But So that's very interesting. The call of the bride uh, in chapter 2, and that one, it mentions Zion, and it's like it mentions two women. It mentions Zion as a beautiful woman, but it also mentions the bride as another beautiful woman. So that's, that's, that's quite a fascinating topic there as well. I must say, Stephen, in this chapter two, it was so amazing to read a clear description of Jesus. I know, it's amazing. Thing. <laughs> I found this also in the book of Enoch, that there's so many descriptions of the Son of God sitting at the right hand of God very similar to the throne scenes in the Bible, especially the book of Revelation. For our listeners, let me just read this example from Second Ezra chapter 2. This is verses 27 through 30. A soundbite with nightlight. nightlight. I, Ezra, saw on Mount Zion a great multitude which I could not number, and they were praising the Lord with songs. In their midst was a young man of great stature, taller than any of the others. And on the head of each of them he placed a crown, but he was more exalted than they. And I was held spellbound. Then I asked the angel, 
Who are these, my lord? He answered and said to me, These are they who have put off mortal clothing and have put on the immortal, and they have confessed the name of God. Now they are being crowned and receive palms. Then I said to the angel, Who is that young man who placed crowns on them and put palms in their hands? He answered and said to me, He is the Son of God, whom they confessed in the world. So I began to praise those who had stood valiantly for the name of the Lord. Then the angel said to me, Go, tell my people how great and many are the wonders of the Lord God which you have seen. Encouraging you how very dearly Jesus loves you. You're listening to Nightlight. Well, I think that passage will really inspire people to want to read Second Esdras. It's amazing. Yeah, beautiful. Well, yeah, that's, that's good you uh, highlighted that passage. It's beautiful. For me, the most important with all these books, these apocryphal books, is the fact they talk about Jesus. And that is why I'm interested in them, because it talk. I mean, look, chapter 7 talks about the Messiah prophesied. It says there specifically, I will send forth my son in 400 years. Now, the thing is this, the original, if you see the original text in 2nd Esther, is missing two prepositions. Now, what I have to say here is I honestly believe people need to understand that just because certain books are no longer in the Bible and they were taken out 100 years ago, doesn't mean to say that that action was justified. Right. Uh, People assume that the authorities or whoever it is would make a decision on the canon they, they, are, they are sacrosanct. There's no way they could get things wrong. I would dispute that point, especially from 1885. When they took those apocryphal books out, I think the writer you quoted to me, he had it spot on. You can't have the Bible without the apocrypha. I would agree with him. I would totally agree. Because um, without the apocrypha, you are missing some key points about the Messiah. You are missing key prophecies about the Messiah and salvation that it talks about, not from the point of view of simple salvation by grace. That's that's nice and simple. We have enough from the New Testament to prove we're all saved by grace. But it gives a lot more details about it. In chapter 9, I've labeled that salvation for that reason. Okay. And I want to move on here to another topic here, which I find very interesting. That is that Ezra talks about a three-headed eagle, and the angel Uri tells him, that we continue to give you information that was given to your brother Daniel. Now I put it to you, how could the angel say to Ezra, we continue to give the information that was given to Daniel, it's talking about Daniel 7, and and about the um, fierce beast of the end time, we're going to give you more details. Now how is that even possible, unless Ezra lived pretty much at the same time as Daniel, he's calling him his brother, and he did live, at the same time. Interesting. Things like that prove to me, no, this was written by Ezra. This is not a, um, a pseudo-graphic writer coming later. No, no, there's too many clues in the book showing that indeed Ezra wrote the book and the angel proved it by what the angel told him about his brother Daniel. Now, moving on from that, what he did was Daniel talked about this fourth beast, this ferocious beast, which has been labeled by 
many theologians and, and many prophecy experts as talking about Rome. Well, this book of Second Esdras goes one further in that it talks about Rome in great detail. It calls it this three-headed eagle and a lot of wings, and it talks about how the Romans, when they became emperors, they seceded one after the other by uh, murdering each other. Right. He tells it exactly how it was. I mean, I saw a book recently called The um, Twelve Emperors of Rome, and it confirms exactly what this prophecy is saying. So I say that it's, uh, that's in chapter 11. Very, very interesting about the three-headed eagle of Rome. And then it, the next chapter, I call it The Lion of Judah, because then it's obviously Jesus talking as the Lion of Judah comes along and rebukes this three-headed eagle. And he also mentions how that, just like Daniel had done in the book of Daniel, how that out of Rome came one of the last heads, which uh, I think is talking about the future government of the Antichrist, is prophesied right there in this three-headed eagle. And then it's, it's finally rebuked and destroyed by the Lion of Judah, by Jesus himself, telling it off in no uncertain terms. So 11th and cha 12th chapter talks about Bible prophecy as um, the end-time empire emerging from the ancient Rome Empire, and it's finally destroyed by God himself. The 13th chapter, I talk about the Son of God. It gives more detail there about Jesus and the Son of God. 14th chapter, I call it the Times of the Ages. The 15th chapter, the Wrath of God. And finally, the 16th chapter, Babylon the Great. Wow. Now, these last chapters are quite challenging because they're similar in some ways to the, uh, Revelation 16, Revelation 9, and, and 8 and 9. And they're also similar to the book of Enoch. It's amazing how similar these things are. But in Second Ezra, it goes even further. As much as Enoch did describe the end time really well, I think Ezra goes even further because he talks about the days are going to come when you won't even be able to trust your neighbor. Gosh. Each man for himself. And it says a spirit of unrest will take over the people. And that was this kind of conditions you had right before the great flood where Every man for himself, no police, no protection, no army, total anarchy. I mean, the kind of chaos you don't want to see. It talks about that. I personally have the conviction. I, I am not, um, I believe in the uh, post-tribulation rapture. I personally believe that the worst things like he describes from 14 chapter to 16 I believe, personally, a lot of those things won't really happen until the very end of the tribulation when God has taken all light from the world. He's taken his children home. I think that the worst things of total anarchy, total chaos, won't happen until we, the bride of Christ, have all gone home. That, that's my personal conviction. This is after the rapture at the second coming of Jesus and before the Battle of Armageddon. While we're up there at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then the wrath of God is poured out, and then we come back at the end of the wrath of God uh, to the battle of Armageddon. Well, I'd say that Ezra, he, he says the same things. You know, but he gives more details and describes the type of conditions on the earth and what the sun and the moon are like, just like um, Joel talked about. Uh, he gets it very, very accurate. And like the more I study this book, I'm, the more I'm absolutely amazed by it. And then... I, like you said yourself, when I read these books, I, I don't read it with a sceptical mind. I, I read it with the heart and mind that, well, maybe it could happen. I mean, why would 
the angels of God be talking to his prophets. The angels of God are not going to lie to them and tell them a fib. No, the angels of God are reliable and they tell the truth. But what's happened is there's a lot of lies gone out into the world. There's a lot of deception gone out in the world. And I believe that, as I said about Enoch in the book of Enoch, these books have been deliberately blacklisted because of content. Because if people knew the secrets that in these books it could enlighten them in such a way that they'd become a brighter light themselves, like a prophet of God unto others. Wow. And I think that's exactly what God wants. He wants more people to stand up for him and be a bright light for him because they have the knowledge of heaven, the knowledge of his angels. That's why I can't stress enough these apocryphal, I think, I, I never get fed up with reading. I love reading them. <laughs> You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. And on this edition of Nightlight, with us once again on the program is S.N. Strutt, Stephen Strutt, author of Esdras Insights. Stephen, it's been fascinating hearing about this apocryphal as well as apocalyptic book, Second Esdras, and I'm sure there's a lot more you could share. Well, I can tell you that I've had quite a lot of people uh, put very good comments to my book. Uh, this one here, Esther's Insight, a lot of good um, responses from people. One of their responses, they said, you read the book and you think you've had your mind blown enough until you get to the appendices. <laughs> okay, there's only 16 chapters, but there are 20 Appendices. That's a lot. And in these appendices, I handle more information, a lot more on the call of the Bride of Christ. That's very beautiful. Also talk about the bosom of Abraham. That's a, a Jewish expression for paradise inside the earth. And Jesus, of course, gives the whole story of Lazarus and the rich man and how one went to hell and beside him, the other was in paradise. Well, it talks about that too. Also, some amazing thing in this book is the time sequence. The angel specifically tells Ezra that more time had gone in Ezra's life than was yet to come. He specifically says it. Now, if you time that, um, according to most evangelical Christians and Pentecostal, the earth is somewhere 6,000 years plus, something like that. Now, that seems to fit the bill because the angel is telling Ezra that more time had gone until his time, until the end of all things, right? So that seems to be very much the case. If you think of the second coming of Christ as coming shortly, and you think of Ezra's time, well, that's only two and a half thousand years ago, as opposed to three and a half thousand years yet before that from the creation. So that's one point alone there is giving a very interesting time sequence there, which I find very helpful. Right. And there's another one in there where he actually gives the numbers. I explain the time sequences in my book. I explain that there are five ages from creation until new heaven, new earth. And that Ezra himself, I explained what age he was in and why I, why I know that. Because they gave him some mathematics to work with. And I worked on the mathematics and found out it worked by doing it two ways. But I won't tell you more than that. That is fantastic. There's some fantastic mathematics in this book that was given to... Ezra, proving what time he was in, and it was proving the Messiah would come in 400 years after his time, which happened, of course. Mm -hmm. So there's no end of, uh, I, can't, I can't believe how many 
useful things there are, there's secrets that people don't know today that they ought to know about. And I think I would finish by saying that um, the Apocrypha books are so valuable that the only reason I can think they were taken out is because they lead people too much to Christ. As strange as that might seem, you say, well, wait a minute, the, the authorities that would take the books out, surely aren't they pro-Christ? Were they? That's the question. Were the people responsible for removing the Apocrypha pro-Christ or against Christ? Now that is, needs to get investigated because just because people have a lot of power and a lot of money doesn't mean to say they've got the right course. And often they have another motive. And I honestly think that more and more in today's skeptical world, they're trying to destroy simple faith in the Word of God. And whatever we can do to give the true Word to people, the Word of God, that will encourage their faith that there's a real God, there's a real Jesus who really loves them, cares about them, cares about what happened to them when they die, cares about their salvation, then I feel my job is very valuable, what I'm presently doing. You're right. It's Nightlight. Stephen, one thing I have to compliment you on is that I really like the format of this and your other books, especially as you cross-reference the text with so many Bible verses. Well, what I like to do with the books is to put lots of Bible verses in there because I really believe that the most important thing any of us can do is to value God's Word. I really take my hat off to the ancient prophets of Israel and the scribes who faithfully recorded God's Word in such a way we still have it today. That is amazing when you think about it. When you think about it, I recently found out that any book within 200 years disintegrates. So somebody has been faithfully keeping the books, copying them, recopying them, transcribing them for thousands of years. Somebody has been very faithful and Israel and their scribes and their prophets were the most faithful in this ministry. So I'm very thankful for that. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Stephen, this is your third book, and you told me you're also working on a couple more insights into the book of Jasher and also the book of Jubilees. Both are books I know are mentioned in the Old Testament, books I really know nothing about. So I'd like to ask you about those. But first, while we have you on the show, how about telling us something of your testimony, how you came to Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what, I... I myself, I come from a upper middle class background. My grandfather was in the aristocracy, like a lord, these kind of people, you know. But somehow he didn't manage his finances too good. <laughs> so uh, we were, ourselves were never, as you'd say, rich. And I'm glad we weren't, because I think wealth can get in the way of people's spiritual growth. That's my yeah. philosophy, anyway. So anyway, I went to boarding school and... Um, and uh, so I was with boys nearly all my life, but I was the kind of guy who really likes women. So by the time I was 18, still at boarding school, I said, oh, enough of all this, man. I'm going to have to travel. So I decided to start traveling, and um, I went over to Norway. I went to Scandinavia, started hitchhiking around there. I had a few relationships with women, did some jobs cutting down trees, and, and, and then I decided, oh, I like it much more over here in Norway than in England. Um, it's, uh, the women are more beautiful, and, um, and they're more friendly as well. So at least that's what I thought. You know, that's just when I was young, I was 18, 19 at the time. 
I was I was at university. I was studying, but I was getting bored of it. I was studying electronics and stuff. It was interesting, but I just wanted to do something different. I wanted to get away from the mold of boarding school and nothing but study for you know decades of years. So I started traveling around, and then I decided I was going to move to Scandinavia, and I did that. Uh, at the time, I was with this very beautiful girl. But God used her in such a way that she, I was a sort of like rebound relationship. And I knew nothing about women uh, because I'd been at boarding school. And she was writing me these lovely letters, beautiful flowery letters. And I, oh, I've got to move over there then since she likes me so much. I get over there and I find out it's none of it's true, you know. And uh, therefore I find myself dumped. And um, I'm on this train going back to my lonely apartment. I got to be drinking too much. I was drinking too much. I was on this train and I thought, oh, this life's crazy. I mean, everything I tried to do up to that point, I tried to be a fighter pilot. I was training to be a fighter pilot, uh, only for them to find out something medically wrong with me, where I, I, was, I had the academic side of things and I had the training, but at high altitude and decompression, I would have problems with my heart and my breathing, so I couldn't continue as a pilot. And I, I knew later it was a hand of God. He didn't want me to be. Uh, my father had been a fighter pilot. So had my uncles. Um, so I didn't continue. Um, I moved over to Scandinavia to kind of get away from that fact that I couldn't be a pilot. And, um, and then that relationship fell through. And then I was getting very desperate. I couldn't understand why everything I tried was going wrong. I was on this train. And at the time I was an atheist. I don't believe in anything. Um, because my father had been an atheist. But I was on this train, I said, oh, I'm fed up. I was, like I said, I was very drunk. And I thought, I'm sick and tired of everything going wrong. I know, I'm going to throw myself off this train. Now, it's a very funny thing because I'm not normally at all like that. And I haven't been since, thank God. But I got this really low moment, bad moment, when I felt like throwing myself off the train. I thought life was pointless, useless. And uh, it seemed very much that way to me that everything would go wrong. So then I thought, well, before I throw myself on the train, I don't even believe in God, but maybe I should give God a chance, just in case he might be there. I don't know. So I just, in desperation, I cried, if there's a God out there, or a Jesus, or whatever there is, show yourself right now, or I'm throwing myself on the train tracks. I mean, I laugh about it now, but I was dead serious in that moment. I'll never forget that. And suddenly things changed from one moment to another. Somebody was really concerned about me because I suddenly felt this peace come over me like I can't describe. Amazing peace. And I felt a voice talking to me say, you're not really going to throw yourself on the train tracks. I said, no, no, that would be very stupid. What am I thinking? Of course I'm not going to do that. Okay, your girlfriend's left you, but you know, there's a lot more fish in the sea, the voice said to me. Yeah, of course you're right. What am I thinking? I must be drunk of my head or something. And then I heard the voice say to me, I want you to spend the rest of your life telling others about me. Oh, I missed that bit out before. I said, well, who's this voice talking to me? And he said, I'm Jesus talking to you. And I'm very concerned about you and your life. And he says, I would like you to, and I said, well, what do you want me to do in my life? I said, I want you to spend the rest of your life telling others about me, that I'm real, that I'm, I'm not just some old bushy-haired guy or some guy stuck on a cross somewhere. I'm alive, and I have eternal life to offer people, and I want each person to be saved. So I want you to dedicate your life to telling people what happened to you, how you got saved from being an atheist, and you got saved, uh, and so anybody can get saved. And I, since that moment in time, I have been a missionary for the last, um, well, since 
two, I think. Oh, how long is that? <laughs> Getting on for 50 years soon. <laughs> but and I, I don't have no regrets. My life has been full of joy and f a very colourful life. I have a wonderful wife. We have 11 children. We have four grandchildren. Um, and they're all over the world, my children, in many different countries. And it's been a beautiful life, a wonderful life following Jesus. And we've tried to live by faith. And that means you know, getting in His Word every day. And it means listening to God and, and asking Him what He thinks we should do. I wouldn't want to change that life for anything. Knowing God personally is the best thing ever happened to me. Nightlight's Interview of the Week. And our interview for the week is with Stephen Strutt, and he's been telling us something about his new book, Estrus Insights. Thanks, Stephen, for also sharing with us something of your personal testimony, how you came to know and serve the Lord. Well, I see that we still have a little time left, so maybe you could give us a little preview of the two books you're currently working on, Insights into the books of Jasher and Jubilees. Both are books that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? I remember it says it a few times. So, these are also very important historical and prophetic books, even though they're not included in the Holy Bible. Yes, I could discuss those books with you, no problem. Well, I can tell you, I'm working on Jasher and Jubilees at the same time, strangely enough, uh, chapter by chapter. I'm working on these books, and I hope to make these the best ones yet, because I'm learning a few tricks, uh, how to improve things as I go along, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but the book of Jasher is, to me, I would say it probably is the most amazing of all of them so far. By the way, Jasher is not the name of a person. Really? The thing about Jasher, which is unique, is apart from the book of Enoch, it tells more about what happened before the flood and in pre-flood times than any other book, with the exception mm. of Enoch. But it doesn't stop there. After the flood, it talks in great detail about the Tower of Babel, how high it was. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, the details in that book. It, to give you a little taste, it claims that the Tower of Babel was over 8,000 feet high. Gosh! To give you an idea. Uh, we don't have anything comparable to that in all our skyscrapers today. Uh, you know, it's unbelievable stuff. So, anyway, it gives a lot of details about uh, the Tower of Babel. And it gives a lot more details than even the Bible does about the life of Abraham, which I find fascinating. I'm recently studying a lot about Abraham and Sarah, because I think that they haven't been given, as, as much as the Jews trace their heritage to Abraham, I still think Abraham hasn't been given enough credit for the things he went through. Abraham, for example, was an idol smasher. Right. That's what he was, an idol smasher. I think for three generations before him, they were all idol worshippers in his family. But Abraham broke with that tradition, and it, it was at a great price. So Abraham was a very great man, much more than we're led to know in modern times, because, well, you need to read these other books to find out why, <laughs> like the book of Jasher. So the book of Jasher goes, it takes you all the way from the sixth day of creation. I don't know why it leaves out the first five the days of creation, by the way, but that's another mystery. But it takes us from the sixth day of creation all the way to just after the death of Joshua. Wow. So that's the book of Jasher. The other book I'm working on is Jubilees. And the book of Jubilees, again, it's the same format where you've got, in this case, many angels of God, seven angels of God, 
talking to Moses on the mountain. And when you talk about the burning bush, in this book explains how the God's angels ministered unto Moses and taught him the things from creation onwards. Really? And the, the Jewish writers tell me that Jubilees is, they also call it Little Genesis. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a good name for it, uh, Jubilees. But Jubilees is absolutely fascinating in a different way than Jasher is. Jasher is like a, it's like a history book of events as they happened, probably quite embellished, but very interesting and made very interesting reading. And Jasher, I think the songs have made, I mean, these stories, sorry, have remained so interesting, maybe so, so that they could even read them to children. Huh. You know, whoever put that together really uh, did a great job. You never get bored in reading the book of Jasher. It has 91 chapters and it has an amazing amount of uh, different stories in there. It has a lot, especially about Abraham's family, his descendants, a lot about the sons of Jacob. And it also shows them as having tremendous well you'd have to call it supernatural powers like they were not like ordinary men that they were much stronger they had special powers and stuff that's another disputable thing to talk about but we do know that later in time of course samson he was such a man so right jasher a very interesting um drama a real dramatic book from beginning to end with amazing information jubilees is more down to earth but it does give the story from creation, again, all the way through to Moses' time. So those books really cover a lot from, let's say, anywhere from Joshua all the way back to the beginning of creation. And I, I think that uh, a lot of us in the past, we've known a lot of the New Testament because we've concentrated on Christian writings. And a lot of us thought, oh, we don't need to read the Old Testament. That's old stuff, but uh, totally wrong. There is so much history. There's so much um, uh, in studying Israel and God's people of the past and, and how God used them, how they got into a lot of trouble. To me, reading Isaiah and, 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 and uh, Jeremiah and reading these apocryphal books, it really helps me to understand God's thinking, how he feels, uh, how he relates to people. And I intend to make videos about this sort of thing and, and um, as spin-offs from these books that I'm studying because I think that if we can encourage people, please dig into God's Word night and day as much as you can. Dig into the Word, into the Bible, into the New Testament, the Old Testament and, and, and read some of these books that you should know but unfortunately haven't been made available until modern times. I mean, like I said in my last interview, I didn't know anything about the book of Enoch about five years ago. And neither did I know anything about Ezra's. I know there's a lot more I have to study too. Uh, there's a lot more to study. But I will try and get these books together probably in the next six months because they are fascinating as well. Jash is very going to be very big. That's 91 chapters. That's probably going to be like a 400-page book. Jubilees has got 51 chapters. That would be just like my, uh, my second book. I think it'll be like size of Enoch Insights. Uh, came, uh, Jubilees. Stephen, thank you so much for all the hard work, study and research you're putting into the writing of these books. I mean, it's a massive job. It's fun. I, I know. Uh, all I can say is describe it is it just feels like 
I have a lot of trials and battles about writing. Oh yeah, I could be doing any number of other things that might seem to others to be more successful and, you know, more lucrative or immediately bring in finances. But I don't have that motive. I'm doing this because I feel led by the Lord's Spirit that somebody needs to do the painstaking work, verse by verse, verse. I feel like one of the scribes of old, something like that. Uh, painstakingly putting stuff back together again because somebody has been deliberately take these books away from people and and make it so they don't have the full truth the wealth of truth it's quite a pleasant night when listening to nightlight Stephen, maybe now it's a good time to share your contact details maybe even tell us about your new youtube channel I've just started. I've just started putting um, videos onto YouTube. The first three videos are very short, two to four minutes. They just announced uh, my three books, and you can find those easily by going on YouTube. Look for Enoch Insights, Ezra's Insights, and my first book was about the paranormal. Was um, called Out of the Bottomless Pit. It's easy to find those on YouTube just by putting the title of the books in there. Those YouTube channels only been open about a short week so far, but I'm starting to get reaction from people, which is good, and comments. So um, I'm trying to get my books off the ground um, because, um, as you know, my wife has been uh, crippled in the last three years, and um, I don't have a lot of time where I can go and push things. You know, I, like I used to go around the churches, the African churches. I used to go and sell books and products, but I don't really have the time to do that anymore. So I'm hoping to find a way how I can get my books off the ground by encouraging people to read them. But I found just putting books on Amazon doesn't sell. Uh, you've, got to, you've got to really give lectures. So I thought the only other way I can do it is to give lectures through videos from my home. So that's what I'm starting to do. I will start to do. I wanted to leave time, and we do have time for me to read at least one sample chapter from Second Esdras. As I mentioned, I think at the beginning of the show, Stephen, after reading your book and coming to appreciate the importance of Second Esdras, and there'll always be a debate on whether or not it should still be in the Bible, but no one denies, at the very least, it's an extremely important historical and prophetic book, and I was inspired to record it professionally. And it'll soon be available as an audiobook. So, dear Nightlight listeners, you're going to be the first to hear a sample of my reading of Second Estrus. And let's close the show with the last chapter, chapter 16. I'll let you go, Stephen. Thanks for all you shared, and God bless. Okay, and say hello to your whole family as well. You're doing a great job down there. Fantastic job. Even the night can be bright when you switch on your nightlight. Second Estras, Chapter 16 Woe be unto thee, Babylon and Asia! Woe be unto thee, Egypt and Syria! Gird up yourselves with cloths of sack and hair. Bewail your children and be sorry, for your destruction is at hand. A sword is sent upon you, and who may turn it back? A fire is sent among you, and who may quench it? Plagues are sent unto you, and what is he that may drive them away? May any man drive away an hungry lion in the wood? Or may any one quench the fire in stubble when it hath begun to burn? May one turn again the arrow that is shot of a strong archer? The mighty Lord sendeth the plagues, 
and who is he that can drive them away? A fire shall go forth from his wrath, and who is he that may quench it? He shall cast lightnings, and who shall not fear? He shall thunder, and who shall not be afraid? The Lord shall threaten, and who shall not be utterly beaten to powder at his presence? The earth quaketh, and the foundations thereof. The sea riseth up with waves from the deep, and the waves of it are troubled, and the fishes thereof also, before the Lord, and before the glory of his power. For strong is his right hand that bendeth the bow, his arrows that he shooteth are sharp, and shall not miss when they begin to be shot into the ends of the world. Behold, the plagues are sent, and shall not return again until they come upon the earth. The fire is kindled, and shall not be put out till it consume the foundation of the earth. Like as an arrow which is shot of a mighty archer returneth not backward, even so the plagues that shall be sent upon earth shall not return again. Woe is me! Woe is me! Who will deliver me in those days? The beginning of sorrows and great mournings, the beginning of famine and great death, the beginning of wars, and the powers shall stand in fear, the beginning of evils. What shall I do when these evils shall come? Behold, famine and plague, tribulation and anguish are sent as scourges for amendment. But for all these things they shall not turn from their wickedness, nor be always mindful of the scourges. Behold, victuals shall be so cheap upon earth that they shall think themselves to be in good case, and even then shall evils grow upon earth, sword, famine, and great confusion. For many of them that dwell upon earth shall perish of famine, and the other that escape the hunger shall the sword destroy, and the dead shall be cast out as dung, and there shall be no man to comfort them. For the earth shall be wasted, and the cities shall be cast down. There shall be no man left to till the earth and to sow it. The trees shall give fruit, and who shall gather them? The grapes shall ripen, and who shall tread them? For all places shall be desolate of men, so that one man shall desire to see another and to hear his voice. For of a city there shall be ten left, and two of the field which shall hide themselves in the thick groves and in the clefts of the rocks. As in an orchard of olives upon every tree there are left three or four olives, or as when a vineyard is gathered, there are left some clusters of them that diligently seek through the vineyard. Even so in those days there shall be three or four left by them that search their houses with the sword and the earth shall be laid waste, and the fields thereof shall wax old, and her ways and all her paths shall grow full of thorns, because no man shall travel therethrough. The virgins shall mourn, having no bridegrooms, the women shall mourn, having no husbands, their daughters shall mourn, having no helpers. In the wars shall their bridegrooms be destroyed, and their husbands shall perish of famine. Hear now these things, 
and understand them, ye servants of the Lord. Behold, the word of the Lord, receive it. Believe not the gods of whom the Lord spake. Behold, the plagues draw nigh, and are not slack. As when a woman with child in the ninth month bringeth forth her son with two or three hours of her birth, great pains compass her womb, which pains, when the child cometh forth, they slack not a moment. Even so shall not the plagues be slack to come upon the earth. And the world shall mourn, and sorrows shall come upon it on every side. O my people, hear my word. Make you ready to thy battle, and in those evils be even as pilgrims upon the earth. He that selleth, let him be as he that fleeth away, and he that buyeth, as one that will lose. He that occupieth merchandise, as he that hath no profit by it, and he that buildeth, as he that shall not dwell therein. He that soweth, as if he should not reap, so also he that planteth the vineyard, as he that shall not gather the grapes. They that marry, as they that shall get no children, and they that marry not, as the widowers, and therefore they that labor, labor in vain. For strangers shall reap their fruits, and spoil their goods, overthrow their houses, and take their children captives. For in captivity and famine shall they get children. And they that occupy their merchandise with robbery, the more they deck their cities, their houses, their possessions, and their own persons, the more will I be angry with them for their sin, saith the Lord. Like as a whore envieth a right, honest, and virtuous woman, so shall righteousness hate iniquity when she decketh herself, and shall accuse her to her face. When he cometh, that shall defend him that diligently searcheth out every sin upon earth. And therefore be ye not like thereunto, nor to the works thereof. For yet a little, and iniquity shall be taken away out of the earth, and righteousness shall reign among you. Let not the sinner say that he hath not sinned, for God shall burn coals of fire upon his head, which saith before the Lord God and his glory, I have not sinned. Behold, the Lord knoweth all the works of men, their imaginations, their thoughts, and their hearts, which spake but the word, Let the earth be made, and it was made. Let the heaven be made, and it was created. In his word were the stars made, and he knoweth the number of them. He searcheth the deep and the treasures thereof. He hath measured the sea and what it containeth. He hath shut the sea in the midst of the waters, and with his word hath he hanged the earth upon the waters. He spreadeth out the heavens like a vault. Upon the waters hath he founded it. In the desert hath he made springs of water, and pools upon the tops of the mountains, that the floods might pour down from the high rocks to water the earth. He made man, and put his heart in the midst of the body, and gave him breath, life, and understanding. Yea, and the Spirit of Almighty God, which made all things, and searcheth out all hidden things in the secrets of the earth, surely 
he knoweth your inventions, and what ye think in your hearts, even them that sin, and would hide their sin. Therefore hath the Lord exactly searched out all your works, and he will put you all to shame. And when your sins are brought forth, ye shall be ashamed before men, and your own sins shall be your accusers in that day. What will ye do? Or how will ye hide your sins before God and his angels? Behold, God himself is the judge. Fear him, leave off from your sins, and forget your iniquities, to meddle no more with them for ever. So shall God lead you forth and deliver you from all trouble. For behold, the burning wrath of a great multitude is kindled over you, and they shall take away certain of you and feed you, being idle, with things offered unto idols. And they that consent unto them shall be had in derision and in reproach and trodden underfoot. For there shall be in every place and in the next cities a great insurrection upon those that fear the Lord. They shall be like madmen, sparing none, but still spoiling and destroying those that fear the Lord. For they shall waste and take away their goods and cast them out of their houses. Then they shall be known who are my chosen, and they shall be tried as the gold in the fire. Hear, O ye, my beloved, saith the Lord, behold, the days of trouble are at hand, but I will deliver you from the same. Be ye not afraid, neither doubt, for God is your guide, and the guide of them who keep my commandments and precepts, saith the Lord God. Let not your sins weigh you down, and let not your iniquities lift up themselves. Woe be unto them that are bound with their sins, and covered with their iniquities, as a field is covered over with bushes, and the path thereof covered with thorns that no man may travel through. It is left undressed, and is cast into the fire to be consumed. Mm -hmm.